and welcome to Accountability Talks with AGA. I'm your host, Paul Marshall. Today we're talking about an AGA paper that came out not too long ago. It's called Reducing Fraud with a Dynamic Approach. And our guests today are Caitlin McGurn from Guidehouse and Melinda Miguel from the state of Florida. We're going to dive into the paper and provide some anecdotes and ideas from their perspectives. I hope you all enjoy. Hello and welcome to the podcast. All right, so today we are going to be talking about a recent AGA paper that was released uh, entitled Reduce Government Fraud with a Dynamic Approach. And uh, for that, we have a couple of dynamic speakers for you. So we have uh, Caitlin McGurn and Melinda McGill. So why don't we start off just, uh, if you all don't mind introducing yourselves, maybe Caitlin, do you want to go first? Absolutely. Thanks for having us here today. Um, so as Paul mentioned, I'm Caitlin McGurn, and I'm a partner at GuideHouse in our financial services practice. Um, I've had the pleasure of working with AGA for a number of years now and really enjoyed teaming with AGA on this survey and subsequent report. Great. And uh, Melinda, please introduce yourself. Awesome. Hi, Paul, and hi, Caitlin. It's so good to be with you today. And I am Melinda Miguel. I am the AGA president-elect, and I'm also the chief inspector general in the state of Florida in the executive office of the governor. Awesome. Well, so uh, let's get into it here, and uh, I, I definitely encourage folks to go to the website and check out the uh, the paper. We'll provide a link. Um, I mean, one of my overall comments, I just love the way this is laid out. It's very visually appealing, easy to read, and uh, I think you all did a great job with this. So maybe, Caitlin, do you want to just kick us off, give us a little, give us the, uh, the audience an overview of the paper, the purpose, some of maybe the executive summary findings there? Absolutely. I would love to. So we embarked upon this in the spring of 2021. And what we wanted to do here was really get a sense for some of the trends that we were seeing in the broader fraud space in the public sector. Um, We had recently done a similar fraud survey in the financial services space and thought it would be interesting to, to team with AGA and get the same perspective for the public sector space as well. And so what we did is we actually issued a survey. We had over 300 respondents to the survey itself. And the survey data is going to drive some of the the statistics that we'll talk about today. But in addition to the quantitative survey that we did, we also conducted a number of qualitative interviews. So once we got that data back, we took a look at it and we wanted to peel back the layers a little bit further and understand at a greater depth some of the drivers that we were seeing that were leading leading to the results that we had. And so to do that, we conducted these interviews um, with a number of individuals at different levels of various types of public sector organizations, all of whom have a role in fraud prevention and detection. And that is what is driving what we have here in the report today. Um, we'll go through some of the detailed findings today and are really excited to talk through those with everyone. I'm sure it's going to be no surprise. We did find that fraud is increasing um, and will likely continue to increase as we go further into the future. But we did find some really interesting things and came up with some great themes related to what agencies and organizations can do to address their increasing fraud risk. 
Great. And, uh, you know, Melinda, I don't know if you want to respond to that or give your perspective from uh, the OIG side, or we can just go into the, the pieces of the paper, but I thought I'd give you a chance to maybe just give us your, your, your perspective. Well, certainly, I think that um, it's important to um, look for our increased risks and trends uh, as governments to um, make sure that we're being effective in fraud detection, prevention, as well as deterrence. You know, I really am, am super excited about this publication by Guidehouse for publishing this paper. Um, you know, this perspective that they're offering on the increased risk of fraud due to some of the sudden expansion and or escalated speed of delivering certain government benefits, hiring vendors and contractors in response to the pandemic has certainly put increased pressure on governments to get the money out quickly and has also resulted in an increased risk to government um, from a fraud perspective. So I think that this, this report is extremely helpful and important to identify some of those issues. And if, Paul, if you're okay, I can certainly jump right in to talk about some of the common challenges that we're experiencing. Sure, we'll do that. Um, and, and just again, so there's basically four parts of this, and uh, we'll start with the common challenges, and then we'll come back to, uh, so we talk about the risks and trends, the challenges, technology, and some steps to take. But uh, yeah, Melinda, why don't you go ahead and give us some of those challenges? Awesome. So, you know, some of the top obstacles to uh, stronger government anti-fraud programs, I think that you will find those in part two of the report. And, and I can echo exactly those uh, four challenges that have been identified in this publication, um, with the number one issue being some of the resource and budgetary constraints. Um, with the fact that we've been asked to do more and more with less and less, this certainly takes a toll on the people spearheading those anti-fraud programs. Um, it's oftentimes difficult uh, in more tranquil times to actually um, get interest in funding certain fraud prevention uh, activities. Uh, we've certainly experienced our fair share of budget cuts. And uh, so, you know, having the budgetary constraints is, is certainly one of the most difficult. Uh, we also have difficulty hiring reta and retaining qualified um, staff that have a specific lack of specialized skills in detecting fraud trends or detecting indicators of fraud and following those all the way through to prosecution. Um, there's some inability to access data. Sometimes there's problems with data quality. Uh, often th there's silos that have been created to manage certain programs and yet we need to take an enterprise-wide view of some of the data, and oftentimes it's a little difficult to get to that. They might have disparate data or differing formats, uh, maybe even incompatible formats, um, and simple data accuracy issues certainly pose its challenges for us to um, detect and pick up on some of those fraud indicators. Uh, another uh, important um, obstacle can be the organizational structure itself in, in the creation of all of those silo, silos. It may be a little difficult for us to um, have the same impact across the organization. Um, each organization has a culture, has a tone at the top, and fraud detection and prevention can be an important priority 
or it can be kind of a dirty word. Um, you know, the, there's oftentimes, you know, experience with the working with the program staff where it may be a little bit difficult because they're already stretched thin too. So if we're trying something new, like a new data analysis technique, sometimes you'll, it'll be met with some re resistance. And uh, so, you know, proactivity versus reactivity is part of culture as well. Um, really important to make sure that people, processes, and technology are working together so that these can be more effective um, in um, building a, a good, strong government anti-fraud program. Absolutely. And Caitlin, did you want to add anything to that one? You know, I, I think we'll get into some of those a little bit later when we talk about uh, the steps to address them. But you know, I think what's really interesting about the challenges is that as we did the interviews, we found such consistent themes across the board at very different organizations. And so a lot of what Melinda talk, touched on right there in terms of the data sharing, in terms of the resource constraints, these are things that are pervasive across organizations. And because of that, I do think it's important that we start to think about what do those solutions look like and what are those things that we can do slowly and incrementally to help us break down the barriers that have been created by some of these challenges. Right. And then let's, let's dig into to that a little bit more too. So uh, part one, we kind of, we went two and now we're going back to one. That's okay. But um, you know, you all did talk about specifically right now in the environment, current environment, what are some of those increased risks and trends you all are seeing out there? Um, you know, is it organized crime? Is it just a lot more fraud happening here? What are some of those things you're seeing? That That's a great question. So, you know, at a high level, when we did the survey, we found that 53% of respondents felt that they face a higher or dramatically higher fraud risk today than they did the year before. And I think what's interesting about that statistic, as I said, the survey went out, I believe, in March or April of 2021. And since that time, additional programs have been rolled out in support of pandemic relief. And I would assume that as a result of that, that percentage would be even higher today than it was back in March or April. What we found is that fraud schemes are getting increasingly sophisticated and coordinated. And as a result, it does require that sophisticated and coordinated response as well, both in terms of the prevention and the detection. What we're seeing in terms of the causes of fraud, what's really driving the fraud, what it came down to in the survey was security breaches, misrepresentation of facts, identity threat, theft, and internal threats. Those were the top four in that order. And then the other thing that we focused on was those may be the causes of fraud, but what types of programs are being targeted? And what we found in terms of that was that the number one response was vendor payments, the second response was benefit payments and payroll disbursements, and the third was grant disbursements. Um, so some interesting trends that we were seeing in terms of the responses related to what is going on in the broader risk space. And I would say to your point around, you know, what we're seeing more broadly, definitely those coordinated, um, you know, those coordinated efforts that are harder to guard against. And to Melinda's point, one of the best ways, in my opinion, that the public sector can fight against coordinated fraud attacks 
is through the sharing of data. The sharing of data that allows more robust fraud prevention efforts up front to perhaps stop them in their tracks, but then also more robust data sharing that can be used on the detection side of things as well on the back end. Um, that said, you know, one of the things that we are seeing in the space right now is the speed to delivery in terms of getting funds out the door has been the top priority. And as a result, we've seen a number of entities make conscious decisions to reduce the level of fraud prevention controls that they have up front so that they can increase that speed to delivery, which is understandable. Uh, but what that means is that now we really do need to ramp up on the back end with those detection efforts and make sure that those are ro as robust and um, as accurate as possible to ensure that we're able to claw back any funds that went out the door inappropriately. Melinda, anything you would add to the, to the, the, to the trends that we're seeing? I think that you're spot on as it relates to the areas of most fraudulent to the least fraudulent to include those payments to vendors and or benefit recipients and payroll disbursements or grant disbursements. That's exactly what we're seeing here in Florida. In fact, we do have a task force here in Florida based upon some of the risks um, associated with the identity theft with the reemployment insurance. Uh, payments that were being made. We also found that people were stealing identities and filing false false claims in order to get those benefit payments um, using legitimate names and um, data like social security numbers or addresses, but then they were um, changing it so that they could um, actually commit the identity theft and then reroute those payments someplace else to themselves. So, so that is a higher risk that we're seeing here and that task force I think has been very effective one of the things the task force was doing and looking at was also a trend that um, popped up in Virginia and uh, we proactively got together on our task force and included the inspector general for the Department of Corrections because of the proliferation of some of the inmates um, actually filing for uh, claims and benefits even though they were in an institution and uh, not eligible for, for those particular uh, pandemic relief funds. Right. And this, you know, this kind of segues to the next topic, um, because, you know, so what technology is out there that can, you know, help us with this? I mean, my, my thing has always been once the money's out the door, good luck getting it back. You know, So, I mean, yeah. can, can we prevent this in a better way? And I mean, I know, you know, things keep changing every year, but I feel like there's been a lot of advances in AI or RPA, things like that. I mean, that hopefully could uh, give us an advantage here. And maybe Caitlin, do you want to jump on that one? Absolutely. I, I do think that in this case, well-implemented technology is our friend and is going to be the best thing that we can use to fight against the fraud risk that we're seeing. Uh, what was really interesting to us is that nearly a third of the respondents that we surveyed do not use any form of technology in their fraud risk programs. And it's interesting to me because a lot of times we think of technology, we think of a huge lift, um, significant costs associated with implementation, and that doesn't always have to be the case. Uh, the types of technology that we're seeing as most successful when they're incorporated into fraud programs are rules-based scenarios, predictive analytics, as you mentioned, artificial intelligence and machine learning, and robotic process automation. So some of those they do come with a higher price tag. Some of them are a lot easier um, to implement in terms of speed of implementation, but also easier to implement in terms of the
the budgetary investment that's required. Paul, I think to your point, rules-based scenarios are very helpful on the front end from a prevention perspective when you can build in the right controls through those rules-based scenarios to weed out the um, those recipients that are not eligible, should not be applying for funds. That's something that can be very helpful. Um, similarly to, to your point, um, AI and machine learning can be very beneficial as well. I think there are a couple of keys that we need to consider when we're talking about technology. And one, as I mentioned, is you know proper implementation. So really make sure that it's being calibrated to meet the needs of your specific program. That calibration should also be monitored on a regular basis. What we're seeing is that fraud schemes change quickly and fraudsters, they, they catch on to what is being done from a prevention and detection standpoint, and they alter their approach. And as a result, the technology and the rules-based scenarios would need to be altered as well to keep pace. The other thing that's really important to keep in mind is that machine learning does have a risk of having biases incorporated into, into what it is doing. And so that does need to be monitored. Um, so typically we recommend having monitored AI or monitor, monitored machine learning to guard against that risk as well. And then the other thing I would point out when it comes to technology is training. Making sure that the individuals that are part of your fraud program are appropriately trained on the use of that technology and that that is documented thoroughly so that, that you're able to continue to provide that training in the event of turnover is very important. Because otherwise, technology is not going to be working towards that end goal. It is not going to be up to date for your latest fraud risk assessment. And you want to make sure that if you make that investment, that you're doing everything that you can to ensure that the technology is giving you the greatest thing for your buck. Um, I think what's one of the things that's really interesting in my mind is that we do have a lot of organizations that are facing resource constraints. And as Melinda mentioned, the resource constraints can come in the form of either budgetary resource constraints or human capital resource constraints. And technology, in my opinion, is one of the greatest tools we have to fight against those resource constraints. Yes, it does require a budgetary investment upfront, but it, it also allows organizations and agencies to do more with less and really increase the scope of their fight against fraud and increase the power that they have to improve their prevention efforts and also improve the, frankly, the firepower that they have behind their detection efforts as well. Right, and actually I wanted to mention something too that I think we had talked about before the podcast. I want to make sure we mention it, but, you know, kind of the tie between cybersecurity and fraud prevention, right? Because it seems like those cyber attacks that, you know, grab these huge data sets from government agencies are obviously a, a, a wealth of uh, fraud, uh, you know, fraud uh, schemes here. So, I mean, would you say, I mean, investing in, pro in really good cybersecurity is another huge frontline uh, mechanism for fraud, uh, fraud, fraud prevention as well? Absolutely. I mean, when it comes to cybersecurity, I mean, that's an opportunity to really cut the, the fraud program, the fraud starts off at the source not even allowing them access to the data that they're going to use to perpetrate their scheme is a great way to ultimately improve fraud outcomes. One of the things we tried to do with this survey, which I think is a little unique, is we did try to connect cybersecurity and fraud and think about them through the same lens. I think oftentimes they're thought about in two separate worlds, 
when in reality, as you touched on, they are inherently connected. And cybercrime can then lead to the data and the assets that are used to perpetrate further fraud schemes, both against that organization as well as other individuals and in, in organizations as well. So to the extent that we can start to think about them together, it may be helpful in terms of creating that greater holistic perspective when it comes to risk in general related to organizations. And it could also help from a budgetary perspective. I think you know cyber does get a lot of attention and fraud is one of those areas that only gets attention when something bad has gone, gone wrong, right? Something has happened and now, now you're getting the attention and now you'll get the funds. What I wish more people would recognize is that if we invested a little bit more upfront around the prevention efforts, we would have to spend a lot less on the back end when it comes to detection and when it comes to cleaning up some of the messes that have been created as a result. Right. And, you know, once the money's out and you're trying to get it back, it turns into a, a criminal case, right? It's not just give me the money back. It's, that's a big thing. You know, our, our U.S. attorney is going to bother to prosecute. I mean, it's a bigger deal. So, I mean, Melinda, I'd love for you to weigh in on, on that or just more about the technology and tools you're seeing. Absolutely. Well, I, I I love what Caitlin was saying about the more holistic approach um, and, and being proactive and invest, making certain investments on the front end. I think that those are, are critically important um, uh, points that she made here. Um, you know, I, I also think that, that um, we need to play the long game. You know, this is more of a, a marathon and not a sprint. You know, fraud detection, prevention, deterrence is is something that should be baked into our programs and our systems. I think it's important to build those internal controls uh, into the elements of major programs and or major systems whenever you're doing system design so that you can plug modules in easily that are part of fraud prevention and update those as the schemes evolve. Um, I also think that uh, data sharing and challenging um, those owners of data to share that information in a consistent format um, so that it does make it a little bit easier for uh, those of us on the back end of a project to investigate or, or share elements that uh, might make sense or might make it a little bit easier. I think also sharing best practices um, so that we can hear what's going on, like like hearing about what happened in Virginia with the corrections uh, inmates um, and the uh, benefits programs, I think was really helpful for us to proactively respond based upon what they experienced. And having that vast network of of folks to um, you know share what they're seeing is is so helpful. Um, Caitlin also mentioned training, you know, a training program to make sure that people are skilled at uh, detecting fraud and making those cases is so important. I love what, uh, Caitlin, what you said about investing in the cybersecurity uh, elements up front, um, you know, that, that really this is inherently connected to a, a strong system that would help prevent fraud just on the front end by that investment in cybersecurity so that identity theft or other schemes can be reduced and uh, mitigated. So that's extremely important as well. So I um, I agreed with so many of the things that Caitlin was talking about, and the use of technology is, is definitely ripe for um, using those um, AI or other 
data and uh, analytics tools or other tools to be more helpful. You know, when we are traditionally dealing with fraud and you're you're dealing with that investigation on the back end, like you said, Paul, it's hard to go back and claw back that money after it's been released. And then, you know, maybe never seeing the results of that um, labor of trying to collect that money back um, until either prosecution or, or, or never. It's a, it's a costly program. So if we shift the program mindset to being more proactive, I think that that's got a lot of, of benefits. But I also caution that it needs to be a holistic approach, like Caitlin mentioned, that it really, you know, it needs to be prevention, detection, deterrence, uh, both proactive, reactive, making investments in those internal controls on the front end are all extremely important, sharing best practices, and then sharing data and collaborating across task force or working groups, um, much like what the federal government does with SIGI and the inspector general community on sharing uh, what they're seeing across the, you know, the agencies is so helpful. Great. Well, so, and that brings us kind of to the last uh, portion of the report. And, uh, you know, we talk about six steps to fortify your fraud program, you know, for your existing agency. I don't know, Melinda, did you want to touch on a couple highlights from that? Or, you know, just give us your perspective on some of the tangible things that somebody can do to really fortify their, their current fraud programs? Absolutely. Um, I think it's really important to socialize the need for a fraud program. Um, it's it's definitely something that needs to be funded. It does take resources. It does take tools. There's opportunities to um, increase um, the inspector general role in uh, contract oversight, for instance, in, in Florida. Um, baking in and building in those internal controls into major system design or into major programs is so important. This um, recovery opportunities that have been created either through the CARES Act or, or the ARPA funding has created some great opportunities for us to, to reset and rethink our approach. Uh, one of the things that we're doing is we're helping each of the state agencies do a risk readiness review. And this is using the a, one of the AGA tools from their website. Um, and their website uh, is the, you know, uh, the link for InterGov whenever you're actually going out to find, um, like, for instance, another tool that's really helpful uh, is the AGA's Fraud Prevention Toolkit. Um, that can be found at www.agacgfm.org and then go on to the InterGov link. Um, so, so those tools are extremely helpful. And and we've taken the subrecipient monitoring tool from the AGA InterGov website, and we've updated it for our agencies to complete a risk readiness review. And it's basically allowing the agencies to do an internal control self-assessment of the major elements that are in place for a program that, like the CARES Act money that's coming or the American, um, the, the ARPA funding that's coming. So, you know, they, they can complete these tools. They can um, make sure that their internal controls are in place. They can self-assess uh, to be sure that they are, are exercising and implementing and using those internal and relying upon those internal controls. And um, we've found that those tools that AGA posts um, is, are, have been so helpful to us. And um, I, in fact, I co-chaired 
the fraud prevention toolkit working group back in 2010, and that tool has since been updated to keep pace with newer information. But I, if if people would like to check those out, I highly recommend those as some possible sources for information. Great. And um, yeah, Caitlin, if you want to add anything to that um, and or I think after that, I'd love to hear maybe a, a, a case study from uh, from your perspective as well. So go ahead. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with everything that Melinda said in terms of takeaways. One of the things that we really tried to do with the survey report was find a way to distill the data into meaningful chunks, but then leave readers with some very concrete steps and actions that they can take to make a difference in their fraud program. And I think to Melinda's point related to the tools that are out there, one of the recommendations that we had was to make sure that your agency or organization has a complete and current fraud risk assessment. So similar to what we talked about before, in order for you to create and adjust and adapt your fraud program to meet the needs, you have to know what those risks are first. So that's a, that's a very important step. So we encourage everyone to make sure that their fraud risk assessment is current and make sure that it's updated with a regular frequency so that they feel like their fraud risk program is ultimately able able to address the risks that are out there for that particular agency. Um, a couple of other takeaways that I would highlight as well is that you know sometimes when you're either at the beginning of a fraud journey or maybe you're, you're in the middle and you're dealing with resource constraints, at times it can seem overwhelming and feel like it's going to be impossible to move the needle. But one of the things that we found through the conversations we had as part of our qualitative interviews is that incremental changes can be very meaningful and can help you quickly improve your anti-fraud efforts. And so I think, you know, for anyone out there that's listening or that reads the report and thinks, this is great, but what can I do with this? I would say start small and look for those small, meaningful changes that you can make within your organization. It can be as simple as doing what Melinda said and going out and taking a look at the AGA Fraud Prevention Toolkit and figuring out how you can incorporate some of those tools and templates into your fraud program. So I would say never underestimate the power of small incremental changes. And then keep in mind that you don't need to reinvent the wheel when it comes to fraud prevention and detection. I think that um, there's a lot to be said for collaboration in this space in particular. I think collaboration in general is a wonderful thing. We can all learn from that. But I think it, with fraud in particular, it's collaboration is so important because you can learn from other organizations around what they're doing that works, how they've made the most of their budgetary dollars, what fraud schemes they're seeing, to Melinda's point, the connection that they were able to make in Florida from what was going on in Virginia. Those are things that only come through collaboration. And I think the other thing that collaboration can do as well is it can help us start to break down some of those data sharing barriers. Data sharing is a much more complex topic and there are a number of reasons why data is not able to be shared as broadly as I think would be helpful in the space to address fraud. But I do think that collaboration and communication can start to help break down some of those barriers and hopefully help us move the needle on that piece as well. So those are, those are some of the steps um, that we wanted to, to put out there for individuals and agencies to help them move forward. Do you want me to go ahead and dive into a, a case study? 
Yeah, yeah, let's do that, and then we'll have Melinda do one, and we can kind of wrap it up then. Perfect. That sounds great. So I was hoping we could, what I wanted to do is share a, a commercial case study, um, because one of the things that we try to do when we look at fraud is, is compare best practices, not only among agencies, but also between the public and commercial sectors. I think there's a lot that can be learned from both sectors in terms of looking to the other and seeing what they're doing that works well. Um, so the case study that I have for us today is related to a, a financial institution, actually. And it's a financial institution that was growing rapidly due to acquisitions. And while they felt they had a strong fraud risk management program, they did recognize that after the acquisitions, they had some gaps that they needed to address. And so one of the first things that they did was actually what we just talked about. And that was once they completed their latest acquisition, they actually sat down and they did a fraud risk assessment. And they tried to get a sense for where things stood now that they were a substantially different organization than they had been a few years before. And that helped them to ultimately aim their fraud program as they go, went forward. Interestingly, one of the things that they found when they did this is that they felt like they had sufficiently mitigated fraud risk from an external party perspective. But what they identified was that their true risk was actually from internal fraud actors and internal threats. So they were able to build that into their program so that they had better safeguards in relation to internal threats. So some of the things that they did, um, they actually enhanced their whistleblower program to make sure that there was a direct line to the heads of legal and risk and direct access to the board of directors. They deployed a robust fraud awareness campaign using multiple channels. They also, as part of this, updated their code of conduct, had annual attestations, added trainings, and really tried to tried to shift the culture of thinking when it came to fraud and what they believed was appropriate business behavior. Um, and that, that gets a lot to earlier, Melinda was talking about culture. The culture of an organization can have a huge impact on fraud risk. And then lastly, they actually established a specialized team and engaged technology to ultimately review escalations coming from the different sources that they now had to capture risks that existed in their environment. So it was, it was a really interesting process for them going from feeling like they had a sufficient and robust program, doing that fraud risk assessment, which highlighted some of the, the weaknesses in their current program, and then working to take that remedial action to ultimately address the gaps that they had through a number of different sources, including working on culture, working on technology, um, and ultimately incorporating training into that as well. So I thought that would be a good one to share because it did touch on so much of what we found in the survey and so much of what we found to be keys to success in terms of identifying and addressing the risks and some of the barriers and challenges that we see out there in the public sector currently. Sure. No, that was a great example. Um, and yeah, just I would ask Melinda, do you have a, a story you can share with us as well? Sure, Absolutely. Um, as part of our accountability activities in the Florida Inspector General community, uh, we have uh, two particular enterprise-wide projects that we're working on that I think will be uh, of interest to the audience here today. Um, one has to do with a House Bill 10, um, 
1079 that was adopted this past legislative session. And the, the, the point of this particular legislation is for the agency inspectors general to conduct a periodic compliance and risk-based audit of all of the procurements uh, within the state of Florida meeting certain criteria over a three-year cycle and also to determine whether or not any of those procurements identify any patterns of vendor preference or other red flags. And so the inspector general community has worked together on building an enterprise approach to accomplish this endeavor across each of the agencies and are working to determine uh, the best way to report out the results of their audit um, to they're, they're working now on some of the um, field work activities to identify um, the obstacle that we've encountered while we were performing this audit has to do with data quality. And it, so it, the, the conversation and the comments that Caitlin was making earlier uh, certainly resonated with me because, you know, we, in order to, to, do the work that's required for uh, analyzing these procurement activities. Um, first off, the, the data quality has to be um, such that we can analyze the, the work there. So, um, so once that's actually addressed, then we intend to perform some data analytics on the 100% population because of some IT tools that we have access to now where before we would have only been able to do a sampling of certain activities. So that's really exciting and I hope to present uh, information on that or have a final report on that sometime in the spring of 2022 as we um, finalize all 35 agencies and, and, and doing the work that's required under this House bill. Um, the other is uh, kind of a different um, animal, if you will. It's an audit related to cybersecurity um, based upon the five NIST domains. There is at least one element um, that, that caught our attention when we were conducting our risk assessment. And based upon the results of looking at the risks, um, we landed upon uh, the topic of continuous security monitoring. So each of the agency inspectors general are working on an audit to evaluate compliance with the NIST framework for continuous security monitoring. Um, we've been holding biweekly calls. Uh, we had some training for the new auditors so that they would immediately be, begin to add impact on the audit. Um, the training that was offered was uh, offered by subject matter experts in the agencies that had uh, either certified information systems auditors or information technology auditor experience that um, conducted that training and uh, went through and evaluated each of the modules and then trained over most of the uh, agency auditors over a two-day period. So uh, super exciting to, um, to see the work of the inspectors general addressing both of these new um, pieces of legislation that passed last session and to work together across the enterprise on these two important fronts to help with uh, detecting or deterring fraud by either looking at procurements 
or making sure that the agency continuous security monitoring is robust enough so that we can proactively prevent fraud um, before it even occurs. Absolutely. Yeah, just like we talked about there with cyber being in that nice uh, upfront prevention mechanism there. So, um, well, no, this has been absolutely. great. Yeah, absolutely. This has been great. And uh, I think I'm just going to, if you all just want to give one more shout out here or call to action, I mean, obviously, I think number one is go read that report. The AGA report is on the website. We'll give you a link. But, uh, Caitlin, any just final thoughts for me before we wrap it up? Sure, absolutely. First of all, thanks for having us. Um, this is fun. I, I love talking about the report. I love talking about fraud. Um, I would say, you know, in conclusion, absolutely read the report. Please reach out and let us know your thoughts. I'd love to hear feedback or thoughts or questions. Always happy to engage in conversation related to this. Um, and I, I would say the one takeaway from me would be, you know, start small. Um, find those small changes that you can make. They will have a big impact and look for ways that you can ultimately enhance your program to to improve your, your fraud risk management. Well, thanks again, Caitlin and Melinda, for joining us today. Uh, I think this was a very informative podcast, and I appreciate your time. Great. Thank you. That's the show. Thanks for tuning in. AGACGFM.org is where you go try to sneak in a couple more of these before the holidays but if not you know we'll have plenty more in 22 so tune in and hope you enjoy some more here in the new year until then this is your host paul marshall for accountability talks with aga